Hi, good morning, everyone. It's exciting to get to start a new book in the Bible. Um, after almost three years in Matthew, uh, but before I introduce the book, I had an illustration uh, share with you what I get to do at my job. So I do uh, work as an engineer at, in an LED company, and uh, we'll see if Luke is able to get the uh, pictures up. There you go. That's, uh, that's what I get to do. It looks exciting, I'm sure. Uh, what you're looking at is uh, data. Uh, I'm responsible in getting uh, LEDs, the uh, little sources of light. And uh, when we develop new kinds of LEDs, we have to test them and see how they perform and maybe optimize to try to get the best possible LED out to market. Uh, my job is to take this and make the next slide, make that out of it. Now, uh, I could actually make a lot of different kinds of charts from the other data set that I showed you. The other data set captures all kinds of characteristics of LEDs, and here I'm just showing uh, one characteristic, which is uh, uh, the amount of uh, the intensity of the light coming out as a function of the current that I'm putting into the LEDs, and there were different, slightly different LEDs, and we were comparing them. You don't need to know about LEDs, but... Uh, I take data and I convert it into a form that makes it easier to apply for a particular uh, application, right? If you were to buy an LED, you don't want that big chart of data, that big table. You want to know just one thing in particular, how bright it is, right? Or maybe what color it is. Um, and uh, how does that apply to what we're going to learn? Uh, if you would go to the next slide, that's the last uh, slide. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Bible, we have different books and different kinds of books. Uh, this is a list of the books we have in the New Testament. Uh, we have, uh, they call it here biography, we call them the Gospels. On the left column, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and John. And we've just finished studying the book of Matthew. The next book in the New Testament is the book of Acts, which uh, basically tracks the history of the apostles from after Jesus rose from the dead. Literally, he rises, uh, yeah, he, he ascends to heaven in chapter 1 and carries us through the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and then to uh, the ends of the earth, which still is within the Roman Empire by the time the book is over but it kind of shows the spread of the preaching of the gospel in the known world at the time. And then we have letters, or we might call them epis epistles, is the Greek word uh, for them. And that uh, goes from the Romans all the way to Jude. And these were letters written by the apostles to churches. So as they preached the gospel, uh, people were getting saved. And as people were getting saved, uh, they started new churches. So in different cities around the Roman Empire, you'd have these new churches. And uh, sometimes the apostles were able to be there in person and teach in person. And sometimes they were not able to be there in person, and so they wrote a letter, right? And these letters uh, became that next section of the New Testament. These are all letters written by the apostles to different churches, different times, different reasons. And then finally, we have uh, the book of Revelation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is a prophecy uh, showing what God has planned in the future for us. Also, a greater revelation of who Jesus is, of course. In all of these, Jesus is being revealed uh, to us. So we just finished uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we will now go to the first of the letters, uh, the, the letter written to the Romans, or the epistle, that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And uh, how does that connect to my <laughs> strange illustration at the beginning? Well, if you would, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they present data, right? They tell us about the Lord Jesus, uh, what the Lord Jesus did, uh, what the Lord Jesus said, who the Lord Jesus is. 
right? Those are all revealed in the gospel. The letters apply these truths to our lives. <clears throat> so we might wrestle with different issues and we might struggle finding perhaps uh, in the gospel uh, exactly what Jesus wants us to do. But in the epistles, we would find uh, a more direct application to what we're going through. I have a brother who uh, is uh, not being faithful to his wife, right? Uh, what should I do, right? Well, we have information about that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? And we learn what we should do. Now, we could go back to the Gospels, and we may find something in the Gospels about it, but in the epistles we find, uh, if you would, applications of the truth uh, in the Word of God to different areas of our life, different things that might be going on uh, in our lives. Romans is a little bit different than some of the other letters. Again, they're each different. They each have their own uniqueness. We don't want to say that Romans is better than the other ones. Uh, Romans um, could be considered unique for its place. It is the first of the letters. It actually was not the chronologically the first letter. It's the first letter located in the New Testament, probably because it's the longest one. If you look at the, the order of the letters, they more or less follow the, the length of them, also going by author. The first set is by Paul. Uh, then we have uh, some of the other apostles, too. Um, I mentioned the uniqueness, uh, yeah, placement, length. Uh, the other thing that's maybe a bit different about Romans, it's not dealing with any particular problem in the church. Most of the epistles seem to be dealing with some issue a church is going through. For example, in 1 Corinthians, uh, the spiritual immaturity, there seems to be a lot of sin in the church, and Paul is addressing that, right? And uh, Galatians, for example, the Judaizers have come into the church, they've confused the believers about the need to, uh, to follow the law of Moses if you want to be saved, and so Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians to address that particular issue. The church at Rome doesn't seem to have any specific issues. Now, there's one exception which we will look at the very end of the message. There is definitely something going on there, but it's probably because it was going on everywhere at the time. It was just a, a difficulty all the churches seem to be dealing with. But there no, doesn't seem to be any particular problem, nothing unique for the church at Rome. Also, Paul has never visited the church at Rome. So he doesn't have that connection he had with some of the other churches where he can refer, okay, I've dealt with this, now we need to talk about that. So Romans seems to be more or less like a, a blank slate uh, to write basically everything Paul would like to write to any new believer, right? Or potentially a person who's not even a believer but just interested in what Jesus had to say. Um, we would say that the main theme is the gospel. That's the main theme of the book. Paul wants to make sure that we understand what the gospel is we understand how it applies to our life. We understand what we should be doing because of the truth of the gospel. Uh, with that said, let's go ahead and look at the first eight verses. Actually, no, first seven verses of the book of Romans. And you will see there how that main theme of the gospel already comes out. Right? There's already going to be very clear that Paul wants to talk about the gospel uh, our brother Daniel was talking to me right before the message. He said, oh, at the beginning, it's just a summary of the book. It almost is because it captures the main theme, which is the gospel. Um, and we will, we will see that as we read and then as I explain. I'm going to warn you in advance. Uh, Paul, uh, in general, and perhaps Romans in particular, does not make for easy reading. Uh, I remember before I became a believer, I started, uh, uh, my lovely wife here, before she was my wife, brought me uh, a Hebrew New Testament that was given to her by a brother, uh, Norman Allensworth, for those of you who remember him. And uh, he told her she had to give it to me, so she gave it to me and kind of pushed me a bit to read it. And I started reading it, um, and I, I wasn't saved, even though halfway through I thought I was uh, saved. Um, but I was reading, uh, starting at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then I got to the book of Romans, and it was like I ran into a wall. You know, I just could not get through that first chapter. It's like I, I couldn't make heads or tails of what I was reading. Uh, and it's partly because that's Paul's style. He has uh, very deep thoughts. In fact, uh, Peter, in his second epistle, warns us about the fact, you know, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't read it, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand it. And that's my job and the job of those who will be uh, teaching to spend time researching, understanding, and then making it easy for others to understand. But as we read it, if you're like, what is he saying? You know, that's not unusual, right, to, to, to struggle with just a, a plain reading, especially a first reading uh, of the Book of Romans. Some, some uh, theologians over the years believe that the Romans should be a daily reading. We just need to keep reading it again and again and again, and every time it gets easier uh, and better. So I would certainly support that recommendation as well for those who want to follow it. So with that introduction, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, a kind of heavy reading, right? But it's okay, we'll, we'll understand it as we go uh, through it. First of all, uh, Paul introduces himself as a messenger of the gospel. Uh, he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservant is more or less the same as a slave. Basically, you have to do what your master tells you to do, and, um, and you never get a new master. Uh, he was called to be an apostle. So he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or a slave of Jesus Christ, meaning he viewed Jesus as his master, as his Lord. He did whatever Jesus wanted him to do. So he, he would be fine if Jesus wanted him to be uh, a characterization engineer. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that, if that's what Jesus wants me to do. But uh, in his case, Jesus called him to be an apostle. Right? An apostle is a messenger. That's literally uh, what it means. Or perhaps an ambassador, which means he represented Jesus uh, and carried the message that Jesus gave him to, uh, to people Jesus wanted him to go to. That was his job. He was a messenger boy, if you would. He had a message from Jesus to you. Jesus to anybody uh, that he would speak to. And that particular message, he, he tells us, is the gospel of God. So you can see here from the beginning, you know, this is going to be about the gospel. Right? That's what Paul wants to tell us about. The gospel simply means the good news. Now we know from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 that the gospel simply is the truth that Jesus died for our sins and he was buried and he rose uh, after three days, on the third day, according to the scriptures. Right? That is the gospel uh, summary, is the fact Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Right? Now we'll see that, you know, even though that gospel message is very um, uh, succinct, right? it didn't take me, take me very long to do it, it's not that easy uh, to just say it and for people to uh, understand, believe, and get saved, right? It takes, it takes more work than that. I used to uh, work with Jews for Jesus, and uh, we would go and hand people literature. And every so often, you know, maybe every fifth tract, somebody accepted from you, 
we were told to try to engage them in a conversation. And we'd ask them something like, who do you think Jesus is? Right? And through a series of questions, try to determine where they are, spiritually speaking, and if it seems that uh, they've never uh, asked Jesus into their hearts, uh, never asked Jesus to save them, uh, but they did not have any um, objection to doing so, to go ahead and pray a prayer with them uh, and conclude that if they prayed a prayer, uh, they got saved. And uh, so I was really excited when somebody prayed with me, right? That's what I was taught. You know, I was there with them uh, serving. And uh, I remember telling uh, Rick Bellis about it, and Rick told me, you know, it, it can be a lot of work to bring someone, uh, help someone come to faith in the gospel. Um, and I think it was John Rosendahl pointed out, you're not saved by praying a prayer, right? You're saved by faith. You're saved by believing in Jesus. So if the people I prayed with didn't really understand the gospel and didn't really put their faith in Christ for salvation, uh, praying with me wasn't actually helpful to them. So it's possible for someone to be just at that point, right, where they understand the gospel they haven't yet trusted Christ, and, and by praying a prayer with them, it helps them cross that threshold. So we're not saying that it's wrong for people to pray, but it's not prayer that saves them, and it's not likely to happen by you simply telling someone that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. Uh, we'll see. It takes, it takes quite a bit of work now, it's not necessarily my work. In fact, it's not really my work at all. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I can be working, co-working, co-laboring, it says in the scripture, with the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that's what Paul will be doing in this epistle. It's, he's going to be spending a lot of time trying to reason it out, help people understand uh, what the gospel is and their need for the gospel. But <clears throat> that is the gospel of God. That was Paul's job. Uh, he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He was called to be an apostle, and he was separated to the gospel of God. Then immediately, no break, verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Again, it's about the gospel. The gospel was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. To me, uh, perhaps the most convincing part um, of, of the gospel. As, as I was, people were working with me and trying to help me understand who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and the fact I needed to uh, trust in him to, as my savior. They went back to the Old Testament, and they showed me prophecies uh, that were written hundreds of years before Jesus came uh, that pointed to Jesus, pointed to the gospel. And so imagine the people at Paul's day you know, as they are opening the scripture and this new news come in, someone like Paul is walking in the door, let me tell you about it and let me show you from your scripture where that's found. And they, the ones who were more noble in uh, Berea, that's what they did. They searched the scriptures and they found that it was so as Paul was preaching it. Uh, so the scripture, the Old Testament, was a wonderful tool for Paul to use to help people believe the gospel because there it was uh, in their own uh, scriptures. Then he continues, concerning his son, again, he's talking about the gospel, right? The gospel concerns his son, that is the son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? So the gospel is about a person. And, and we saw that as we were studying the gospel of Matthew. Really? What was the gospel of Matthew? It was the life of Jesus, right? We saw Jesus from birth to resurrection. Right? That was the gospel, the person of Jesus, as Paul continues, um, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's actually how Matthew starts. Remember that long genealogy in chapter, chapter 1 of Matthew? It, it starts in actually Abraham, but emphasizes David, and it shows that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise as a Messiah. Right? So for the Jews, the fact that Jesus was of the seed of, born of the seed of David was critical to show that he was a fulfillment of the prophecy. And 
we know that as we were going through Matthew, Jesus fulfilled many other prophecies. It's not the only prophecy Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled many prophecies. Uh, the chief one here that, that Paul refers to is that he was born of the seed of David, a descendant of King David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. This speaks of the, uh, the fact that Jesus was not just man, he was also God. Um, one of those critical doctrines in the Bible uh, that the early church wrestled quite a bit with before they could come up with a wording that seemed to capture uh, the truth about Jesus, and it simply is the fact that he has two natures. Jesus uh, was a perfect man, we could see as we go through the Gospels, uh, but he was also God, right? It didn't, it didn't, uh, one nature didn't dominate over the other. Both natures uh, were uh, perfectly uh, expressed, perfectly distinct uh, in the Lord Jesus. Um, but the fact that uh, he was the Son of God was declared by the Holy Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit declare that Jesus was the Son of God? According to this passage, it was by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus was raised by the dead, by the Father. He rose by his own power. He said, I have power to lay down my life and power to take it again. He was also raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, this was a declaration of who Jesus was. How would we know that Jesus was the Son of God? He just looked like a man. Yes, perfect in all his ways, but just a man. But he was declared to be, God declared him to be his Son by the Holy Spirit, raising him from the dead after he died. Now, we know it wasn't just that. He did many miracles during his life. And this is almost like a summary of the Gospel of Matthew here, right? He's trying to capture the main points of who Jesus was, right? The Gospel is about a person, the Lord Jesus. And who was that person? He was the Messiah, the son of David, but he was also the son of God. And that was proven by the miracles that Jesus did. And finally, the greatest miracle was by the resurrection of Christ. So again, sticking with the thought of the gospel, right? This is what Paul is all about, and he's going to get into great details in the rest of the book, right? This is just kind of a, a very brief introduction, trying to get us on the right track here. Okay, through whom? Through him. So there's actually a period at the end of verse 4. So like, okay, we made it through the first sentence. We didn't make it through the first thought, right? They just stuck a period there to try to, you know, help people take a breather as they were reading, the thought continues right along. Through who? Through him, in, the, in some translation, it's just through whom. So talking now about the Lord Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And here, Paul is uh, summarizing for us the gospel work. There's four important truths in this one verse about the gospel work that Paul was involved with. First of all, it's authority. Paul's authority to preach the gospel came from Jesus, for whom we have received grace and apostleship. That is the authority, the power that Paul had to preach the gospel. What right do I have to tell a person that Jesus died for their sins? What right do I have to tell them that if they put their faith in Christ, God will save them from their sins? And the answer for that is God himself. Jesus gave Paul the authority. Um, in Matthew, he mentioned that all power in heaven and on earth was given to him. In Mark, he says, after that, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So Paul's authority to preach the gospel, to promise eternal life to anyone who believed in Jesus, came from Jesus. Right? We have to have authority. I can't tell someone that they will be saved by believing in Jesus unless I have authority from God to do so. Now, Paul had a special authority. This was before the New Testament was written. Right? God imparted uh, special authority to the apostles, those who have seen the Lord Jesus, those who have spoken to the Lord Jesus, 
Paul was among them. He wasn't part of the original 12. Jesus did reveal himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul spent with him, if I remember correctly, um, was it three years after that in the wilderness? Well, Jesus taught Paul. So Paul was teaching. He had a special authority because the scripture was not yet given. Uh, today, all my authority is borrowed from the Bible. I have no authority to tell you anything that the Bible doesn't teach you. But if the Bible teaches it, I have authority, right? And we know from the Bible that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation, then God will save you from your sins, right? And you'll be with him for all of eternity. We were worshiping him this morning because of this confidence, this safe room we have uh, in God, which uh, we know because that's what the, teacher, the Bible teaches us. Anyone who trusts in Jesus has assurance of salvation. We don't, we don't need to doubt it. Um, that's the first thing about the gospel work. It must have authority. Uh, number five, uh, it has a goal. The goal is obedience to the faith, right? You have to obey the gospel, right, if, if you are to be saved. Uh, obeying the gospel is believing it. In Romans 10, 16, Paul complains about the nation of Israel, saying, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? To obey the gospel is to believe the gospel message. God gives us the gospel. The purpose of those who work with the gospel is for people to believe it. Right? It's not, you know, just here's a nice story, pass it along. No, we want you to believe this. We want you to obey the gospel. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus said the same, repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Right? It's a command by God. It's something that we have to do. Now, God doesn't make people do it. People ultimately have a choice to reject the gospel. And by doing so, they reject God right? and the hope of salvation. Uh, third, it says it's among all nations uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Uh, there isn't a different gospel if uh, you're from a different uh, people group or have a different religion. Uh, Hindus can't be saved by uh, being good Hindus. Uh, Jews can't be saved by being good Jews, or Muslims can't be saved by being good Muslims. Uh, there is only one uh, way uh, to heaven. Uh, Peter says in Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one way. We don't, it, it's not a nice thing to say to my Hindu friend or my Muslim friend, uh, but it's the truth, right? There is no, no other way. Uh, so we need to know... Uh, the applicability of the gospel, right? As those who preach the gospel, uh, we need to, to know we have the authority, we need to understand the goal, and we need to understand the applicability. It's applicable to all. Everybody you know uh, needs the gospel. And then finally, uh, it says, for his name. Uh, why, why do we preach the gospel? Well, people have many reasons why they preach the gospel. When I was in New York and I was passing out gospel tracts, Somebody came to me and asked, how much do you get paid for doing it? And they were honest. They, these were people looking for a job. They could be standing on a corner and passing out pornographic material and get paid for it, right? And they thought, maybe I'll get paid more if I pass out literature of the gospel, right? They, they would be happy to do one job as much as the other. Maybe they would prefer to pass out gospel literature, right, as long as it paid the bill. Uh, I wasn't paid. Uh, nobody was paying me. In a sense, I was paying for the privilege of being there. I had to raise support. I had to raise money. You guys paid for me <laughs> to be out there and, uh, and bringing the gospel to uh, people in New York. Um, people could be preaching the gospel with a desire of notoriety. Uh, it's something that I've wrestled with. Uh, sometimes you do it for pride or ego. You want to be the person who... Uh, might uh, be able to say, oh, I led so many people to the Lord. Paul talks about that in Philippians. He says, uh, some preach the gospel for ulterior motives, right? And um, 
Uh, they, they wanted to show themselves as someone greater than Paul. Paul is in jail. Here's my opportunity to shine. Um, and, and you know what? Paul didn't complain. He says, I will rejoice, you know, whether in a, for a good reason or a bad reason, Christ is being preached. And for that, I will rejoice because as long as the gospel message was going out, there was opportunity people will hear it and get saved, right? So we don't want to, I don't want to speak against different reasons people may have to preach the gospel. Uh, and often our heart is not pure when we do that work. But the reason... The ultimate reason someone should be preaching the gospel, someone should be involved in the gospel work, is for his name, right? It's because Jesus deserves uh, to have uh, the gospel preached. Paul says this, explaining his motivation to preach in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He said, my motivation is Jesus. Right? It's the love of Jesus that compels me. Uh, and it's because he loved me first. Right? That's why he was doing it. Um, I forget the exact phrase that was used. But uh, when the Moravian um, uh, missionary work started, there were a couple of uh, people who, uh, guys who pledged themselves as slaves. They were willing to become slaves so that they could serve in one of the uh, slave plantations in the Caribbean because there were people there that were brought as slaves from Africa and they were dying in their sins. And this the missionaries felt, I, we have to go and reach these, these people. And, uh, you know, the slaver says, we, we don't want you to come there. We're not going to give you passage. Uh, the only way you can come is if you become slaves yourself. And they were willing to do that. And I think they used a phrase, something like, may uh, the lamb uh, that died on the cross receive the fruits that he deserves. Right? I'm not doing it for myself. I'm not even doing it for the people that are, are, are being enslaved in Africa and taken to the Karim. We're doing it for the Lord Jesus because he deserves it. Because he died for my sins and he died for their sins. And it's wrong not to tell people about what he did for them. Um, so, again, that's the highest. We don't want to shoot down any other girl. It's a noble thing if you want to preach the gospel to someone because you feel bad for them dying in their sin. I'm never go That's not a bad motive to preach the gospel, but the greatest motive and the one that might overcome all other hindrances, because if there's someone I don't like, I'm not going to want to share the gospel with them to save them from their sins. I don't like them. But because I know Jesus wants me to go, if I love the Lord Jesus, then I should go to them. Right, so it's a reason that overcomes all other uh, barriers. Okay, so I, that was, I know that was a lot. It was just one verse, verse 5. Paul was, again, describing the gospel, the gospel work. That's what the gospel work is. And then finally, the benefits of the gospel, verse 6 and 7, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here the benefits for those who did respond uh, to the gospel among uh, the church at Rome. Uh, it talks about grace, right? They get the grace of God. Um, I think it was Bill that came up with the acronym or shared this acronym. Grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense, right? We receive all the riches of God, all the blessings of God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It talks about peace. We have peace with God. Before we believe the gospel, we're technically at enmity with God and uh, uh, will be uh, uh, in the lake of fire for all of eternity because of our sins. But when we believe the gospel, uh, we have peace with God. We are reconciled to him. And in fact, even more than just having peace with him, we're his children, right? It says, peace from God our Father. 
right? We have a relationship with God. In, the, God, in uh, the letter to John, he says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. So that is uh, the love of God. That is the blessing of the gospel. We're actually uh, placed into the family of God. I don't just have peace with him. I'm his child. Right? We have an intimate relationship uh, with him. Okay, so that is a summary of the gospel. They, we talked about uh, uh, the messenger of the gospel, the uh, promise of the gospel, the subject of the gospel, the work of the gospel, and finally the blessing of the gospels, all in these introductory thoughts. Or you could almost say one thought that... Uh, complicated thought that Paul had to start the, uh, this uh, wonderful letter with. Um, in the remaining time, uh, rather quickly, I'd like to kind of give a, an overall thought on the epistle. Uh, first of all, uh, if you read Bill McDonald's commentary, he points out that it's good to think of this letter as a debate between Paul and a person. Because he'll be, it's like he's asking questions and then answering questions. We'll see that throughout the epistle. And that fits with what we know of Paul. Uh, in Acts 19, for example, you could find this elsewhere. Uh, it, it talks of Paul, verse 8, uh, going into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So he didn't just go in and say, you know, believe Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead. You know, everybody that agrees with me, raise your hand, right? No, he reasoned with them, right? Uh, and we find in verse 9 that some were hardened and did not believe, in spite of Paul, who seems from the New Testament to be like the greatest debater the world has ever seen. Some people hardened their, their hearts and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way or the gospel, before the multitude. So then Paul departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he basically started a new school, or entered a school, a place where you're allowed to debate with people. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So this is what Paul did for three months and again for two years after that in one place in the city of Ephesus, right? Now we're told everyone in Asia, so Asia is kind of a province in what's uh, today modern Turkey. Uh, and yeah, and that's what he did. He reasoned with people. And so what do you know? The letter to the Romans, you're going to find those reasonings, right? So here's an expert debater with a lot of experience talking to people about the gospel. He's writing a letter to Rome and like, I'm going to include these thoughts, because I know the people I'm writing with, writing to have these same questions, right? Are going to struggle with the same issues. And so I'm going to include that in my, in my letter to them. And that's why you will find this style of debating in the, in the letter to the Romans. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, maybe just to round that thought a little bit, uh, there is a spiritual warfare that goes on. It's not just intellectual, right? Uh, Paul says that in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For the weapon of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, Satan is real, and uh, he's alive and well today, and he's involved in the thinking that's going on in people's minds. Uh, not necessarily that you have Satan speaking to you personally, but he's got control over what's going on in our, in our culture today, really, and really at every age. Adam and Eve kind of handed uh, uh, Satan the rulership of this world when they decided to follow Satan uh, in the form of the serpent instead of following God. And so Satan is called the prince of this age, right? He's the one who really is ruling uh, 
And so when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're, you're contending with Satan, satanic ideas that people have. Yeah, there, there's going to be a spiritual resistance on different levels you're going to hit as you're trying to share the gospel with people. And Paul said that the weapons of his warfare are not carnal, but mighty, down in, mighty, in, <laughs> mighty in God for pulling down these strongholds, these arguments that people have. So as we reason with people from the scripture, we're really engaging in spiritual battle. Right? And in Romans, Paul is equipping us Right? He's giving us the swords and the spears and the other weapons that we need to deal with various arguments we're going to come across which are spiritual in nature. It's not just an intellectual battle. You against them who can sound wiser. And that's why when you speak with someone, you should be on your knees. Right? You should be in prayer to God. And um, engage other people in prayer too. Uh, when I was, uh, before I was saved, people here were praying for me. They knew about me. Uh, we prayed for people in a Bible study we led in Berkeley for years. And we saw some people getting saved. But uh, it's a spiritual battle. Um, okay, so what are some of these areas of difficulty? Just really quick, um, you know, question people might ask, am I really bad enough to deserve God's judgment. I did not believe that, right? I didn't believe I deserved God's judgment. I, I, God had to overcome that in my life, right? And uh, Paul will spend three chapters on that one question, right? The first three chapters or so are mostly going to deal with convincing us that we are deserving of God's judgment, right? Um, you're not going to find another section like that in all of the Word of God, right? Well, condense. He's just hammering away, trying to break through this hardness of heart. Ah, you know, maybe I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve to go to hell, right? I mean, that's what people believe. Paul will have to overcome that. Uh, another big one is, can I really be saved by just believing a message from God? Is it true I just need to believe and then I'm saved? Right? And people are like, that can't be. I must somehow do something to earn my salvation. Right? I must become a better person. Or I must do something that's really good. Right? That's what people believe. And so Paul will do a couple of chapters dedicated to convincing us salvation is by faith. It's not by good works. Um, and then a follow-up to that, well, okay, okay. You're saying, I just believe and then I'm saved. Why then not continue to live a life of sin? Right? If I'm just saved by faith, I don't have to become good enough to go to heaven. Why not just live it out? Right? Paul will spend a whole chapter dealing with that question. Um, then another big one is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, do I need to keep the law of Moses? Less pertaining today to people, but there's some... Um, uh, I, I run into that because when people find out that I'm Jewish, you know, they tell me uh, about, you know, other people who um, either are a Jewish believer or they call themselves Messianic. Some of them would actually be Gentiles. And, uh, and when you go to those kind of churches, you will find a lot more confusion about the subject of the law, thinking that you need to keep the law of Moses if you're a believer in Jesus. All right, so Paul will spend a whole chapter dealing with that, chapter 7. Uh, chapter 8 is about why is it so important for a believer to have the Holy Spirit. So we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Some churches will say, oh, you have to talk in tongues, right, to receive the Holy Spirit. Um, chapter 8 will deal about why is it so important for a believer to have the Holy Spirit. And the fact that all believers do have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to talk in tongues to have the Holy Spirit. Chapter 9 through 11, again, kind of unique in the Word of God. What about the nation of Israel? Weren't they God's chosen people? But they rejected Jesus. What's up with that? <laughs> right? Uh, you know, why did they reject Jesus? What's going to happen to them? Right? Those are big questions. Paul will deal with that chapters 9 through 11. Uh, chapter 12, okay, I'm saved, okay, I'm part of the family of God, 
uh, what does that mean? You know, how, how does that affect my life? Right? How should I live as a member of God's family? Uh, that's chapter 12. Chapter 13 kind of turns that around a little bit. How should I live in the midst of a sinful world? Okay, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus, but all the other people around me aren't, right? So how should I live in the midst of an you know, unsaved, sinful world? And then finally, chapter 14 and 15. I know there's chapter 16 too, but uh, 14 and 15 deal with the question is, how should I respond when I don't agree with the convictions of other believers? Right? So we're all believers in the Lord Jesus, but do we agree about everything? Probably not. And if you go outside of this building, outside of this church, go to another church, even more likely that we will find people that have different convictions. How should we deal with that? Uh, so that's kind of a big one. Uh, mostly, it will be about Jews and Gentiles, uh, which is really my next thought. Chapter 16 is mostly salutations, not, no big questions to answer in that one. Uh, very quick, just the last uh, thought that could help us a little bit as we go through Romans. I mentioned at the beginning, there is one issue that probably existed in the Church of Rome because Paul does spend a significant amount of time on it, and that is the Jew and Gentile strained relationship. So uh, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that... Um, Salvation is of the Jews. It came out of the Jewish community. Jesus was a Jew. He preached the gospel first to Jews. His disciples were all Jewish. They were the ones with the Old Testament. They were the ones ready for the Messiah to come. Um, Jesus even said that he has not come except for the sheep of the house of Israel. That was the first focus. But after Jesus was, died for our sins, was raised from the dead, he then commanded his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, including Gentiles. It took them a while, but eventually Gentiles were getting saved. Uh, and at some point, there were more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. And the Jews start, expected the Gentiles, well, okay, okay, sure, you guys can believe in Jesus. You also have to keep the law of Moses, right? They're like, you know, you can't just expect to get full citizenship right without, you know, suffering through what we had to suffer for the last 2,000 years. So, and the Gentiles, on the other hand, is like, you know, you guys are crazy. You know, you had all these advantages and, you know, most of you are rejecting Jesus. You know, what's up with you Jews? Right? I mean, there was this strained relationship. And uh, in, in Romans, we'll find Paul is trying to get them all on the same track. Uh, in the key verse, uh, will be preached about in a couple of weeks. Uh, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then again in verse 29 of chapter 3, oh, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Right? He's trying to include them. For there is no distinction, this is chapter 10, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So Paul is really going to try to pull them together and help them realize, you know what, the gospel is for both of you. Right? You guys should be united. In chapter 15, he says, therefore receive one another. You know, hang out together. You're, you're one you're one church now. Receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. If Jesus was willing to receive me, I should be willing to receive you. <laughs> okay. uh, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So they're coming from different places, but they should be together now. The Jews and the Gentiles should be united. So we'll see that again and again. Okay, we're, we're out of time. Uh, just in uh, way of application, one is um, uh, Matt challenged us last week with the word commencement. I don't know how many of you guys remember that we usually think of commencement as the end, right? It's... Uh, all right, you know, I finished school, now is the commencement. But actually, commencement means beginning, right? Now that we understand 
we need to apply what we learn. And so as we go through the gospel to the Romans, sorry, the epistle to the Romans, uh, we want to apply what we learn, right? The gospel is a truth that should be applicable to our lives. Yes, uh, perhaps we're saved, but the fact that we are saved should mean certain things to us, right? We want to apply it to our lives. The other is, I, I can't help, as I was looking at the life of Paul preparing to this message, how on fire the Lord Jesus, sorry, Lord Jesus was also on fire, but how on fire Paul was for the gospel, right? This is me. I am a bond servant, called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God, and you can just see the gospel pouring out as he's starting to write this letter. He's just so enthused for the gospel. And I was thinking, I mean, you know, I was enthused for the gospel when I got saved. But uh, along the way, you know, I see it, you know, ebbing, you know, and flowing. I mean, what's the word? Coming and ebbing, rising and ebbing. You know, it hasn't been a steady fire in my life. And if anything, now I'm at a low rather than a high in that ebb and flow. And, um, you know, I'd like to catch that zeal again, right, that Paul had for the gospel, and I'm sure you do as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this letter inspired by your Holy Spirit, uh, written by Paul, uh, for our uh, benefit. So we pray as we go through it for the coming uh, weeks and months that you help us understand the truth that you have in it for us and also help us apply it to our lives. And again, Lord, we cry out to you that you'll steer, us our, steer up our hearts to be excited about the gospel. It's true that people have the choice to reject it. It's true that uh, perhaps uh, uh, people are not getting saved as, as quickly as we'd like them to uh, around us. But uh, still, Lord, it's the same gospel, same message, same power to salvation. So we pray that you uh, use uh, work in our lives to get us more motivated to uh, preach the gospel, to share it with others as Paul is, uh, was. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.